0: Hello, and welcome to the Dark Ages Podcast. Today's episode is a bit of an experiment. I'm going to leave explanations and housekeeping until the end, as I don't want to say too much at the outset. I'll just set the scene. Theodoric died in 526, and his crown as king of Italy passed to his grandson Athalaric, who was about 10 years old at the time. His widowed mother, Amala held the regency during Athalaric's minority, This is episode 42, Queen of the Goths. King Athalaric, by the grace of God, to his noble praetorian prefect for Gaul, the illustrious Liberius. You will be grieved to hear of the death of our lord and grandfather of glorious memory, but will be comforted to know that he is succeeded by his descendant. Thus, by God's command, did he arrange matters in order that he might leave his kingdom at peace and that no revolution may trouble it after his death. The death of Theodoric brought to the surface the fractures in an Italian society that had been papered over by the king's gravitas, though as we've discussed, the mask had already begun to slip before his demise. At least part of that may have been driven by anxiety over the succession. The carefully arranged plan involving the marriage of Theodoric's youngest daughter, Amalicentha, to a Spanish noble named Eutharic, and thus maintaining the unity of the Visigothic and Ostrogothic kingdoms, had crashed and it had burned, though not before the birth of two children a son, Athalaric, and the daughter, Matasuntha. Amalasuntha was the only child of Theodoric and the Frankish princess out and the only one of Theodoric's children who had been born in Italy. Her half-sisters had been brought up on the move, no permanent security, their future always hanging on the outcome of the next battle, or the whim of some more powerful authority. Amalasuntha's experience had been a world away from any of that. She had been raised in the Palace of Ravenna, given the best education available to her, which is to say, a Roman education. Her tutor may have been a woman named Barbara, who was from the uppermost of the Italo Roman upper crust. Along with the classical upbringing, Amalasuntha was at her father's side from an early age, and probably more intensely after her husband Eutharic's death. She was in every way positioned to take the tiller of the Italian ship, but the ship itself was leaking, as Roman and Gothic factions drifted further and further apart. There are many among them who have never been reconciled to the late king's disposition to we Romans. The barbarians look on Roman men such as you and I as unmanly, and Theodoric's wisdom in promoting the Roman way, and in educating his daughter in that way, they condemn as alien to their own ways of being. For Amala Swinthe, though she holds fast to her father's Arian religion and cannot be dissuaded from her error, in all other ways is devoted to Romanitas. To me, she calls to mind women of our recent history, most especially the Augusta Gallo Placidia, who, as you know, ruled Rome in the days when Valentinian was a boy. But these barbarians have no experience taking instructions from a woman, no understanding of the phenomenon of the woman who may shake off her natural state and become suited to command, as a man is naturally, though of course not in matters military. Some of these Goths, the more powerful among them, clamor and complain that all of Theodoric's arrangements are contrary to tradition, and that they will cease to be Goths and turn into Romans if things continue as they are. Myself, I suspect that Our Lady may prefer that outcome, though she does not say so. Legal sovereignty passed to Athalaric when the great king died, but before his departure he gathered all the Gothic nobles and compelled them to support the regency of his daughter Amalasuntha, until Athalaric came of age. They made the vows, but there was no precedent in Gothic society for women in places of political power, and Amalasuntha's position was tenuous from the outset. These are the words of the Prefect Magnus Aurelius Cassiodorus to Count Sigismar. Greetings. My Lady Amalaswintha has asked that I prepare instructions for your upcoming visit to Roma to administer the oath of loyalty there to the Senate. Neither she nor I anticipate that they will object to doing so, but nonetheless, it is best to be prepared, and so we advise you select a suitable number of bodyguards to accompany you to the Senate House, along with the clerks who will help you administer the oath. The Senators may object to having soldiers present, but do not pay them any mind. Make note, though, of the names of those who do object, and let us know who they are. His Highness King Athalaric and his noble mother are eager to have the love of both Roman and Goth, as you know well, and will look favorably on anyone who may bring early warnings of sedition among the nations. In the letter which you will deliver to the Senate, I have instructed that they make any request they have through you, and they will be granted. I hope it goes without saying that you should take steps to ensure that such requests should be in alignment with our desires, and so I suggest you meet with the Senators unofficially before the oath is administered. Again, if any requests arise that suggest treachery or sedition, make note of it and report it to either myself or to Our Lady upon your return. Most especially be watchful for any sign that some Senator or other may be corresponding with the Emperor in an intemperate or unhelpful way. For Our Lady Amalicentha would keep Justin Augustus as a friend at all costs. God go with you and grant you success. Amalicentha's upbringing and outlook made the Roman administrative machinery her natural power base. That was fine as far as it went, but in the absence of a mature male at the head of the military hierarchy, she was put at odds with the Gothic elite. And the unfortunate fact was, that they were the ones with the swords. The Goths feared erosion of their cultural identity in the absence of support from the palace, and focused their concern on the boy king.
1: To my lady Amala Sventa, we have addressed you about this subject before but have found our needs ignored by she who should be the first to demonstrate her love for us, her own people, and the people of her revered father. We who have shed blood for your father's kingdom, who would willingly shed blood for the kingdom of your son. We stand disgusted at the dishonor done to us by the Romans over whom we should rule by conquest. Most of all, we protest that you have seen fit to surround our king with the soft and elderly who you call tutors and seek to bring him up as a Roman, not as a goth as would be fitting. You know your own father, blessed memory, ruled both of us and the Romans without letters, and you know what greatness he achieved us. How much worse would it have been for us if revered Theodoric had neglected the manly arts as you do now in the education of our young lord Athalaric, and instead stayed indoors with his books and scribes. You would not now enjoy the comforts of Ravenna had blessed Theodoric cowered under the rod of the schoolmaster, for he would never have won Italy for his people from the usurper Odoacer. As he used to say himself, he that fears the tutor's strap cannot be trained to scorn an enemy's sword. The Romans lost the rule of this country because they gave themselves over to idleness and leisure. We insist that our king Athalaric should not be led to the same fate, for the good of himself and of all of his subjects, both Goth and Roman, for an unwarlike king is of no use to anyone. Therefore, O Queen, Have done with these tutors now, and give to our lord Arthur Loric some men of his own age to be his companions, who will pass through the period of youth with him, and thus give him an impulse towards the excellence which is in keeping with the spirit of our gothic people.
2: Swintha, Lady Regent on behalf of King Athalaric of the Goths and Patricians of the Romans, to Prefect Magnus Aurelius Cassidorus, sends greetings. I write to you in a very agitated state of mind. Enclosed, you will find demands made to me by the Counts Athenrit, Ugeveld, and Teia, which they transmitted to us in their own language and transcribed for you by my scribes. See the demands they make that I should turn over my beloved son the king to the barbarous upbringing they would call education. As you know, I would have my son brought up as my father, did me with the most learned and best tutors that could be found, so that he would know the Roman way which made an empire as great as this and carry on the spirit of the ancient republic. I know there is no need to convince you of the good such upbringing will bring to a king and his people for you are just such a learned man. And my father equally knew this to be true, as he learned from his youth in Constantinople and passed on to me by my dear governess, the Lady Barbara. May she rest with God's blessing. It is true that my father did not allow the sons of these men to be raised as Romans, for he sought to maintain their martial spirit and keep his people separate from the Romans to protect the heritage of both people. But the son of a king is more than the son of a count, and must needs learn the ways of all the people over whom he has authority, and not just his army. Alas, I fear I may not have the strength to resist this insolence. I have it from my spies among the other Gothic lords that such thoughts are common to many of them, and even that many of them suspect me of seeking to weaken my son, Aethalric, even so far as to usurp his power the insult that such a thought should even enter the mind of our own people. In truth, they seek to remove the strong hand of the king, so that they may prey more freely on the lands of their neighbors, with no restrictions of law or authority but their own might. My own cousin Theodahad is among the most avaricious of such men, and I have little doubt that he would make common cause with these rebels if they were to approach him. I have no knowledge, however, that he has moved in one way or the other. I do know that Theodahad is bitter my father did not consider him to succeed him, praise God he did not, and indeed never once did the thought cross his mind except in jest. You and I both know Theodahad's quality. I confess, friend Cassiodorus, that I fear for my own safety and for the safety of my son's kingdom. I feel that it will soon be necessary to take some action or flee Italy, and to that later end. I have written to his majesty Justinian seeking refuge from these tormentors. I ask that you take whatever steps you deem necessary to accompany me should such flight become inevitable. In the meantime, unless you or one of your people may devise some stratagem, I fear I must acquiesce to the demands of these Gothic lords and allow my son to be placed with companions unworthy of him. I pray you return to me and write to me as quickly as you are able.
0: The removal of her son was a blow to Amala both emotionally and politically, as of course it would be. Yet some years passed before the situation came to a head. She ruled Italy more or less alone, with the help of the same cadre of Roman administrators who had served her father, including Cassiodorus, who she made Praetorian prefect for Italy, and Old Liberius, the man who had been so instrumental in the transfer of lands to Gothic landlords at the beginning of Theodoric's reign. Now chief administrator for Gaul, he was around 60 when Theodoric died, and will appear several more times in our story. With men like these, Amala maintained peace in Italy, adjudicating increasingly frequent disputes between Goth and Roman, as well as maintaining relations with the surrounding states, chief among them, of course, the Empire. The Gothic faction complained that she was biased against her own people, and even accused her of plotting to marry a Roman and usurp the throne from her own son. Plots grew among the Gothic nobility. Amaliswintha was aware of all of this and made her own arrangements. Before she could make a move, though, a
3: contingency would be needed. These are the words of the Emperor Justinian, the victorious, pious, happy, renowned, always triumphant Augustus. To Swintha, honored regent to the patrician Athalaric of Italy Greetings. The good works of the servant should be always acknowledged by the master and the work of the client should be rewarded by the patron. You have, as your father before you, provided us with good service and assistance in our endeavors in Africa and have upheld the spirit of Romanitas and Civilitas in spite of the calls of your own race and heritage. Now you have written to us in distress to ask our assistance should you be forced by shameful schemes and disloyalty to flee the land of Italy, which is the land of your birth and seek refuge with us. It is with great sorrow that we hear of your troubles, that even your own son, in a monstrous perversion of natural affection, should not speak out against your troubles and misuse. Such a failure of fidelity shall surely be punished by the Lord God, for he is just in all things, though works in his own time. Showing that very manliness which we have already spoken of, you have made preparations to remove the rot from your vineyards. We pray for your victory and will not speak more of it, but fortune turns her wheel, and none can know where it will stop. Therefore, we happily give that for which you have asked. A house is to be prepared for your particular use in the city of Dairachian, so that you may repose there in safety, either in perpetuity or until circumstances allow your return to your home. We have, in addition, sent a letter to the revered bishop of that city, that he is to make available the vaults of his cathedral church for the safekeeping of all your goods and property which you mentioned. We pray to Almighty God that such extremity be not needed, that you shall prevail over your enemies and those who whisper slander against you. The Lord God grants help to those of worthy heart and brave spirit. And we know that you possess many of the masculine virtues of your father, in spite of your sex. So we pray that you may be victorious and ever be blessed in his sight.
0: Amalacintha had a ship prepared placed on it a handful of trusted servants, and loaded it with as much furniture and other possessions as she could, along with 400 centenaria of gold. 400 centenaria of gold is 40,000 pounds, which is more than the annual tax income from the whole of Italy. It must have been a very large ship, and it was probably a handful of ships. These sailed to Duracium, modern Dures in Albania. There they waited, with instructions not to unload until events worked themselves out.
2: The Queen regent on behalf of her beloved son, the King Athelaric, to the noble Count Athenaric. I have had word, as have you, I'm sure, that the King of the Franks, because of his own greed, intends to make incursions into our lands in Italy and the Alps. Therefore, we order you, with all your strength, to go forth to take control of Fopenkham and guard the road there between Italy and Gaul. Other arrangements have been made elsewhere. Go forth and do the duty that is yours by birth, to protect your land and people by the strength of your right arm.
0: Who knows what reasons were actually given for the transfer of the Queen Regents' three leading opponents. The three were posted to remote locations at the edges of the Gothic realm, where communication between them would be difficult. At which point, according to Procopius, goths who were still loyal to the queen were given secret instructions. The three men died shortly after taking up their new posts, and Amaluswintha remained in Ravenna. Constructing a detailed chronology for Amaluswintha's reign is a little bit fraught. The way Procopius presents events, they seem to take place over just a handful of months, but amalasuentha ruled in her son's name for seven years before tragedy made her position untenable. The assassination of these three counts seemed to have been toward the end of that period as the gothic faction got their claws ever deeper into Athalaric and Amalicentha felt the ground rumble underneath her feet. Success in the dirty business meant that the queen stayed and the ship remained in harbor in Duracium, its goods still firmly on board. Justinian noticed and sent a representative on a fact-finding mission to Ravenna. His name was Alexander and his mission was a multifaceted one.
3: These are the words of Justinian, the fortunate Augustus, to Alexander. We instruct you to travel to the court of Ostrogoths in Ravenna, to she who calls herself Queen of the Goths, and in public put the following matters before her. First, that you have come in the company of priests Demetrius and Hypatius, who are to continue on for discussion with the most blessed bishop of Rome, and ask that she provide escorts and letters of introduction for them. Second, that her men have occupied the port of Lilybaeum in Sicily which had been in the illegal possession of the so-called king of the Vandals and should therefore by right of conquest have passed to our possession notwithstanding our previous rights regarding that city third that a number of soldiers who deserted our army in Africa have sought refuge in her domains and have been given shelter by her servants in Naples and demand that they be surrendered to us fourth you are to protest that a Goth army, while campaigning against our neighbors, the Gepidae, have misused the city of Gratiana, which is under our protection, and demand recompense for the insult. In addition to these matters, you are, in private, to discover the disposition of the Queen within her country, and why she remains in Ravenna, while so much of her wealth and goods float in the harbor of Dirachium. Assure her of our friendship, and wish to resolve these matters in a spirit of friendly concord, for she has done us good service in the past, and we would not see her discomfited by those the priests, men of her Demetrius
0: lands. and Hypatius were on a mission to the Pope to discuss various disputes of doctrine. Demetrius and Hypatius had a side meeting while they were in Rome, with a certain Tuscan landlord.
4: the most revered fathers, Demetrius and Ipacius. I, Theodahad of the Amongs, pray that you carry my words to our most illustrious father and imperator, Flavius Justinianus. Through the favor of Fortuna and our Lord God, considerable lands have come into my possession in the district of Tusculum. Vineyards and good land abound in the country, as well as olives and rivers full of fish. No word can be said against the woods full of game and birds of all kinds. I have the further good fortune of many friends, friends whose fidelity is unmatched, and whose faithfulness to their lord Justinian could have no equal. All these I offer to my most illustrious lord, to pass into his gift, so that all the bounty of this country may pass to him so that he may use this bounty granted by the most holy God for the good of his divine republic. As for me, I shall be content to live out the remaining days granted to me by God in the presence of my beloved Lord Justinianus. Let me stay in his presence, in his city, the most glorious in the world, in a house befitting my possession, and I shall pass away from the earth when my time comes as the happiest of all men.
2: Cousin Theodahad In the name of our son, Lord King Athalaric, and by the power granted by him by our Father of Blessed Memory, we summon you to attend us in Ravenna, to answer accusations that have been brought by certain men of your territory, men of good repute and high station. We shall expect your reply forthwith, and your attendance no later than the calends of next month.
0: When Theodoric died, Theodahad was the only male of a mall birth remaining in Italy aside from underage Athalaric, In the rather loose rules of Gothic kingship, he was a strong contender for rule, as the most senior of the ruling dynasty. Yet Theodoric had always kept him firmly and pointedly away from central authority, and never even considered naming him as even a temporary successor. And Imala saw no reason to deviate from her father's policy. He had been rebuked for his aggressive acquisitiveness by Theodoric, and it's hard to find a single redeeming quality in the sources. Whether Amaluswintha was aware of his flirtations with Justinian, offering to sell Tuscany for the rather paltry price of a senatorial lifestyle in Constantinople, we can't know. But he was summoned to Ravenna and denounced by a wide range of victims in front of a council of notables. Amalus stripped Theodahad of all of the property he had illegally appropriated over the years, especially those that he had half-inched from the royal patrimonium. He was dismissed back to Tuscany, where she kept a close eye on him. Theodahad was a little resentful at this treatment. Already in his fifties, he was not a warlike man. Somehow or other, he had acquired an education in Latin literature and was a devotee of Plato, He wasn't, in short, an obvious fit with the more macho-gothic nobility, but shared resentment can overcome all kinds of personal differences, and Theodahad became more and more associated with, and more powerful in, the gothic faction. Amalasvintha kept her detractors at bay, supported by the Roman administrative machinery, and there were still goths loyal to her as well. Athalaric, nominally still the king, was not among those loyal to his mother. After seven years in the company of the rowdy Gothic military elite, he fell ill. Possibly it was diabetes, along with the effects of hard living. In 534, not long after the confrontation with Theodahad, Athalaric died. He was 17 or 18 years old, and had never really gotten the chance to be king of Italy in seven years. Athalaric's death left Amaluswintha in real trouble. Athelaric's At nominal sovereignty had been the prop that had made her leadership acceptable to the patriarchal goths. Ultimate power came from control of the army, and it was an article of faith that the army could not be led by a woman, no matter how much support she enjoyed from the civilian side. Without the army, she wouldn't last long. In desperation, amalasuentha made a decision that was shocking, but also probably her only choice.
2: Queen Amara Swintha to Justinian the Emperor, I have hitherto forborne to distress you with the sad tidings of the death of my son of glorious memory, but now am able to mingle a joyful announcement with this mournful message. We have promoted to the scepter a man allied to us by a fraternal tie, that he may wear the purple robes of his ancestors, and may cheer our own soul by his prudent counsels. Our cousin Theodahad who I name is Councilor Regni, to rule at my side and maintain with the help of God the peace and prosperity of our people. We are persuaded that you will give us your good wishes on this event, as we hope that every kind of prosperity may befall the kingdom of your piety. The friendship of princes is always comely, but your friendship absolutely ennobles me, since that person is exalted in dignity, who is united by friendship to your glory as we cannot, in the short space of a letter, express all that we desire to say on such an occasion, we have entrusted certain verbal messages to the ambassadors who bear this letter.
0: We can only imagine what those verbal messages were. The arrangement that Amaluswintha proposed was radical. Theodahad was raised to the status of her regnal consort, though as he was her first cousin and already married, there was no question of his becoming consort in the way that we usually use the term. He was to command the army, leaving Amalaswintha to continue operating the civilian machinery. Thorny questions arise like nettles. How would the succession be handled when the time came? How would responsibilities be decided specifically? Did Amalaswintha really think that giving Theodahad partial power would reconcile him to a lifetime of being passed over and scolded? Thinking about it, I suspect that Amalus went to the Theoda had to be all hat and no cattle, that he sought the status and perks of the royal title, but would balk at the responsibility and the day-to-day grind of administration, and that she would be left alone, to exercise power more or less as she had before. It didn't work out that way. Theodahad had forgotten none of the humiliations he had suffered at the hands of the other Amals, and had no intention of letting it slide just because he'd been made a king. Lake Bolsena sits about 60 miles northwest of Rome, surrounded by hills. Two small islands, Piscentina and Martana, sit in the island's southern half. Both are rocky and covered with scrub and live oak. We don't know the details of the coup that removed Amalasuntha from power, except that it was executed quickly, just a few months after Theodahad's elevation. Several Goths loyal to the queen were arrested and executed, and a little while later the queen herself was removed from the palace and taken to Lake Bolsena. She waited there, held captive on Martana the smaller of the two islands. She stayed there according to Giordani's, weeping continuously. She had done her best for nearly eight years, and held her father's Italian kingdom together, but was ultimately unable to overcome the divisions between the Gothic and the Roman, or the military and the civilian. Her misery lasted for three or four days, until the 30th of April, 535, when she was attacked in the bath by Theodahad's henchmen and strangled. Even today, it's said that Amalicentha's weeping can be heard drifting across the lake from Martana when the wind is high. Theodahad reveled in his victory, honoring the assassins openly, but at the same time insisting to an Imperial ambassador that the deed had been done without his knowledge or his approval. He had sent an embassy of his own to Constantinople to justify his coup, claiming that Amalasuntha had wronged him in her earlier dealings, and that Theodahad had done nothing wrong. That was their instructions, anyway. Leading the embassy were a pair of Romans named Opilio and our old friend Liberius. Opilio stuck to the script, but Liberius spilled the whole story to Justinian, and there would be consequences. Most of the letters presented in this episode were my own invention, based on existing correspondence preserved in Cassiodorus's Verrier, and a few other sources. Cassiodorus, Procopius, and Jordanes all present Amalicintha as a steadfast, prudent ruler, every bit her father's daughter. She had the strictest regard for every kind of virtue, in the words of Procopius. Other viewpoints are available. Gregory of Tours goes out of his way to slander Amaluswintha's character, accusing her of licentiousness and even of poisoning her own mother. Quote, mother and daughter both belong to the Arian sect whose custom it is, when they come to the altar for communion, for those of royal blood to drink from one cup and lesser mortals from another. Amaluswintha pops some poison into the chalice from which her mother was to drink. Out of Fleda drank from the cup and dropped down dead but Gregory's real purpose in relating this nugget becomes obvious in the very next sentence. There can be no doubt that such a crime was the work of the devil. What can these miserable Aryan heretics say when the devil is present even at their altar? Now I have defended Gregory in the past, and I will stand by most of it, but when it comes to the hated Aryans, he will tend to let himself go. In this case, he's writing some 50 years after the fact about events very far from his home territory, in the lands of a kingdom the Franks had been sporadically at war with for two generations now. Most historians dismiss his version as entirely specious and accept the picture painted by the other sources, of a dedicated ruler, slightly desperate at times, and driven to extremity by the incredibly difficult hand fate had dealt her. Her murder would trigger a conflict that would see the whole of Italy consumed, and Theodahad would not have to wait long for his comeuppance. That is a story for next time. A special thanks to Peyton and David for stepping in as the voices of Amaluswinta, Theodahad, and Justinian. I hope you had fun. I did. Thanks to all of you for your incredible patience, and I hope that you have enjoyed the different format. An especially heartfelt thanks to contributors Tardegra and Steve, and to steadfast monthly contributors Paul, Scott, Jesse, Brendan, Alex, Dusty, and John, the Magnificent Seven. Thank you. And thanks also to my daughter, who left a review on Apple Podcasts, which was very sweet of you, little one. I've started to put some episodes on YouTube, coming out weekly until I catch up with myself, so to speak. There isn't a video component per se, but if you do like to listen to podcasts on YouTube, or know someone who does, there they shall be. I'm mainly trying to future-proof against the coming demise of Google Podcasts. Just search for The Dark Ages Podcast, and there it should be. All that remains, then, is to thank all of you for listening. Next time, we will be back to find out exactly what Justinian did about Amala Swenta's murder, along with the Wise and the hows.